we're, we're, we're doing a series called Ask Anything. And if you're new, what we did, we, we took a bunch of questions that you guys asked last December, put those questions back to you in a survey, and you guys uh, gave us a top 10. And today we are on number four, I believe. Is that correct? Number four, yes. And the question is, how do you know you're saved? Now listen, listen. The original question that we had was, um, can Christians lose their salvation? But the short answer to that question is no. So my talk would have been no. Let's go home. So I had to adjust things a bit. So we're still going to address the original question in this talk, but I wanted to expand it a bit and address the question, how do you really know you're saved? And, and I'm serious about this, um, this topic. This is, I think, one of the most the most important issue that we're going to deal with in this entire um, series. And so today I'm taking a lot of what I'm talking about from a book by a guy named J.D. Greer that came out about a month ago, and the title is Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Now, before you freak out and think, what is he, like some kind of heretic or something? Um, This guy wrote a book, and... He spoke at the Student Life Conference last month. Many of you guys heard that talk on this similar topic. And the reason why I wrote the book was because he was trying to put out the idea that being a Christian does not just happen just by praying a magic prayer. We call it the salvation prayer, the sinner's prayer. Some use, some use that word. But it is not, it's not just about praying a simple prayer, but it's about repentance and belief. And so he spoke on this at Student Life Conference about a month ago. And it, the story he told of his life and the salvation roller coaster that he was on reminded me much of my own story. I'll share just part of that briefly. Um, the gospel was explained to me at the age of four years old, and the first time I remember hearing about the gospel and Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sins in my place. And I really felt like I had some understanding of what it meant to be a Christian at that age of life. So, four years old was when I quote unquote prayed the prayer. And I can recall doing that. So um, I, I kind of go on with life, and uh, I'd say about the age of 10, so like fifth grade, um, start rebelling a bit against authority, just this sort of heart, of heart of rebellion sort of wells up in me, and I get convicted about that, question my salvation, um, I re-pray the prayer thinking that the last time it didn't take, and then by the age of 13, I'm in what, I think eighth grade. And I'm in this relationship, dating relationship in eighth grade, and it's starting to head down the physical road, and, and I begin to be convicted by that, and in that process, I feel like God is saying to me, I went to a church that had like what they call the altar call at every service, like walk the front, pray a prayer, um, get saved, rededicate your life, get called to missions, like they were just trying to get people to the front of the church to make a big show of it, Right? But God used those moments to really speak to me in spite of the fact that their motives might have been kind of messed up. But God used those moments to speak to me in my heart. And so um, I got convicted by this relationship. I sort of, I guess, rededicated my life to Christ. And um, we broke up. I broke up with this girl. And I really felt like God was saying to me, look, I want you to, to follow me and not get caught up in, in this kind of sin. And so... Um, I went on from uh, eighth grade, uh, freshman year, went on my first international mission trip to Barcelona, Spain, and had this amazing experience on my first international mission trip. And then age 15, I would, I would say that at the time I was considered, you know, one of the leaders of my youth group. 
Um, but I was still got into a dating relationship again in 10th grade. So you could see my big sin issue, right? And once again, it started getting physical, heading down that road. And for 10 months, this goes on. I'm kind of living this life of like, yeah, I'm a, an integral part of the youth group, but I'm also living this other life on the side as well with my girlfriend. And, and so once again, God began to convict me and show me that I was walking and living in sin in this area of my life. And so once again, I get to be a junior in high school, and I've been single for about a year at this point after that last relationship. And there was this, this three-day span of time where, I kid you not, I did not sleep or eat for three days because I wondered, how do I know I'm really saved? Because I knew God was real, but my question was, how do I know my faith is real? That's where I struggled. And so my youth pastor and I sat down and talked this through. I'm going to share a little bit more about this later on in the talk, but I mean, he showed me a passage that changed my life to let me know, no, this, it's possible to be assured of salvation as a Christian and to know that you can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of, of you. And you can put your faith and trust in it. It's, it's possible to have confidence in, in, his, in his work. And so um, the question that was initially asked, though, was can Christians lose their salvation? So I want to address that just briefly. And there's a passage that comes to mind that I want you to look at. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles with you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Because I do want to address this really important question. Because there are some denominations that would teach that Christians can lose their salvation. And I would say that's false. That's not biblical. And I'll show you here why I think that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says... For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So two phrases I want you to see in this passage. The first one is, it is the gift of God. So if God gives someone a gift, is it a gift that he takes away? If God gives someone a gift out of his grace, and his sheer goodness, is it one that he eventually will take away if you mess up? And the answer to that question, I would say, is no. If salvation is given to us, and it's not based on our works and our merit, then it's not going to be taken away based on our works and our merit. So that's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is where it says, you have been saved, past tense. You have been saved. So for those that are believers, it's saying that you've been saved. Not you'll be saved if you don't mess up too much. Or this is not a, um, this is not a, a statement of, of condition in that sense, right? And so you have been saved communicates that salvation is secure. For those that are believers, that are truly believers, it's been done. Salvation has been done. You are justified, fully justified by his grace and his mercy. So if salvation is not a result of works, then the question is what sin can take it away? What sin can we commit that's just so bad that God would say, nope, okay, sorry. Now you can look at other parts of Scripture where it talks about uh, blaspheming the Spirit, and it says that's the, un the unforgivable sin. What that means, though, 
is if someone can commit apostasy, meaning they are rejecting Jesus and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, what that means is I would say it means they never had faith in the first place. They were never truly believers in the first place. If you can come to a place in life where you say, Jesus is not God, and I don't believe that anymore, then I would say you were never truly saved to begin with. So there is a difference there. But there is no sin that you and I can commit that God's going to say, I'm going to take away my free gift of salvation from you because you're just so bad, right? I mean, look at Scripture. Look at David. Look at Paul. We see examples of men and women in Scripture that God just saves out of a sheer grace and mercy. And <laughs> there's nothing you can think up. There's no sin you can think up that's worse than what some of those people did in Scripture, right? And so there is nothing as a believer that God will take away your salvation for. But there are some passages about some people, a different category of people, who, who think they are saved, but they're not saved. And we see this in Matthew chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew 7, uh, verse 21 to 23. So there's this other category of people that Jesus talks about. These are people that think they're saved, but I would say are not saved and never were saved. And I'll show you from this passage. So verse 21, Matthew 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Is it just me? When you read that, that's a terrifying passage, isn't it? That's an absolutely gut-wrenching, terrifying passage to read because you look at some of the works these people did. I mean, look at the list. It says, we prophesied in your name. We cast demons out in your name and did many other mighty works in your name. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. And, and so once again, I would say these are people that, that, that never knew him. And the words in verse 23 say, I never knew knew you. This is not, I once knew you, but I no longer know you. This is, I never knew you. You, you were never one of mine. You, you, were, you never belonged to me. But at the same time, th that still makes this passage a very, very difficult passage to look at, and it's a terrifying passage knowing there are some people, I mean, let's just modernize this a bit. I mean, there are people who can say, yeah, but I did, I did impact. I went on a mission trip. I did some great things for you, and you're saying that I never, I never knew you. I never knew you. And so before you freak out and think, like, oh, my gosh, you're talking about me, I want you to, my goal this, this morning is this. Listen, my goal is to give assurance to those who are saved but have doubts, but to give a healthy fear to those that aren't saved but think they are saved. And so there are two categories of people that I want to address this morning, and, and it's those that are not saved but think they are, and it's those that are saved but doubt they are. 
And so think in terms of, of those two things. Um, about two years ago, I go to a men's conference every, every year here at the church, and there was a guy that got up and spoke a couple years ago. And his kids um, came through our youth group about the time I was coming into the high school ministry. So I didn't really know his kids that well. Um, but this dad spoke, gave a testimony at the men's conference, and something he said stuck out to me. He said the phrase, I know my kids are saved, but they're just not walking right now. And I thought to myself, then I'm not sure I would want to say that I know they're saved. That's, that's my inner thoughts. About a month later, I see him at a restaurant, and I said, hey, can I just ask you a question? I said, I've just been kind of bugged by something. I said, I'm not trying to be confrontational here, but I hear this from parents a lot. I hear parents say things like, yeah, I know my kid is saved because they, they prayed this little prayer back when they were five years old, but they're just not walking right now. And I said, when you say that as a parent, it puts me as a pastor in a precarious situation because I would say to that kid, I'm not sure you're saved. It's okay to wrestle with the fact, are you saved or not saved? But some parents are wanting to give, and some students are wanting to give themselves this false assurance that, yeah, I know I'm saved because I prayed some prayer back when I was a kid, and that's, that's locked up. That's eternally secure in their minds. But when you look at Scripture, I'm thinking if someone's truly saved, then we're going to see some fruit. We're going to see some fruit from that. No one's perfect. Don't mishear me today. No one's perfect. We all struggle with sin. But if someone has never walked with Jesus and they're not walking with Jesus today, I would say to that person, I'm not sure you're saved. I don't think you're saved based on Scripture. And so instead of giving someone false assurance and then they end up going to hell separated from God because of their sin and their deception, I'd much rather have someone wrestle with the truth and say, like, am I, am I truly saved or am I, am I not saved? I'd, I'd rather err on the side of caution with this and say, look, I don't, I don't know that you are. I'm not going to give you false assurance today if that's you. And so my goal this morning is to give assurance to those that are saved but have doubts but to give a healthy fear to those that are not saved but think they are. I want to give you a healthy fear today. Many of you know I've got uh, two little kids, one's five, one's two, and I always tell you guys that I'm convinced that certain things happen to us, um, as me as a pastor, because I have to teach every, I need illustrations to give you on Sunday to teach you from my kids, right? So this past week, here's what happens. Just so you know, my, my daughter Sienna, she's two, and she knows no fear. Landon's not quite like her. Landon, I can say to Landon, look, when he was two, my wife can attest to this, when he was two, he'd say, look, the street is dangerous. Don't go in the street. You're going to get killed. You're going to get hurt real bad to go in the street. And his eyes would get, but he'd say, okay, okay, mommy and daddy. He'd go to the, he'd say, yeah, I'm not going to go out in the street. I'm not going out in the street. I mean, Sienna, we can say, Sienna, don't go in the street. You're going to get killed. And she's like, you mean out here, right? She can't talk that well, but she'll imply, right? And so it's like with Sienna, there's like this glazed over look where it's just not quite sinking in when we talk to her about these things. So 
My wife and I go to a conference in Austin this past week. We're there from Wednesday to Saturday. And the really cool part about it was we stay at the Embassy Suites in downtown Austin. We get there, and they say, we're going to upgrade you guys to the presidential suite. I'm like, what's that? I don't even know what that is. And so they give us this room, and this room was amazing. It had two separate bedrooms that were like the size of a normal hotel room just by themselves. had this massive interior um, living room. And so we get like three rooms for our family, right? And, and so we put the kids in one room, and um, we're in the other room, obviously, and there's a big open space living room. And so one uh, day I'm at the conference over in downtown Austin. My wife's um, in the, the, the master bedroom taking a little nap or watching TV or whatever. And Sienna is in, the, in her bedroom, and we had noticed that she had been going to the door quite a bit of our hotel room, and we're on the ninth floor. And she'd been opening up the door quite a bit from the inside. And you can't lock it except for this little latch at the top of the door that you kind of slam shut. That's how you lock it from the inside to keep little kids like Sienna in the room. So she kept testing the outside. So we kept thinking we need to make sure we lock that door because she's going to try to leave the room at some point while we're here. And so um, we had done it every time up to this point. And so during this nap time for Sienna, apparently we forgot to lock that door just one time. So what happened was Sienna gets up. Lena's taking a nap as well. She doesn't see this happen. Sienna gets up. She leaves the hotel room. She's two. We're on the ninth floor. And she proceeds to get on the elevator on her own and starts riding the elevator up and down the hotel for a while. Meanwhile, there is this glass part of the elevator. So guys are outside. They can see like into the see this little kid on an elevator by herself, guys from the kitchen. So they're like, "Uh, that should not be happening." So they somehow find a way to get her off the elevator, and she's now in the lobby holding her teddy bear, and they have no idea who this girl belongs to, right? Next thing, they knock on my wife's. This one lady knows, like my wife. She she said, "I think I saw this family that had this little baby girl." So I'm gonna go check out their room. So this lady comes to my knocks on our door. My wife answers the door, still not knowing that Sienna's out of the room, right? And so um, she says, yeah, you have a, a little baby girl? And wife's like, yeah. And she goes, can you, like, peer over the edge here? So my wife looks down nine floors and sees Sienna at the bottom, and she's like, hi, Mommy! And, of course, Courtney about has a heart attack. Like, how in the world did this happen, right? And so... Obviously, she's fine, but we have this difficulty establishing a healthy fear in Sienna. It's like we can say things to her, and it's like it just does not sink in. It just doesn't sink in yet. And and some of you in the room, you are like my son, where I can say to you, here's how you walk with Christ. This is what the Bible says about dating. And and you take it in, you're like, your eyes get big, and you're like, yes, yes, I want that. I want to follow Christ. I want to let this change me. Others of you, I can sit up here for months, years, and say the same things over and over and over again, and it's like you have this glazed look on your face, and it doesn't sink in. And, and you're kind of like my daughter. There's not this healthy fear that you've got in your life where you want to wrestle with these things. It's like you have this glazed look where things are just not penetrating your heart and soul yet. You're just not there yet. And so I'm speaking to those two 
different kinds of people this morning. And so there's a quote um, that J.D. Greer has in the book where he says, salvation is not a prayer that you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. And so in Scripture, we don't see this, okay, someone prayed a salvation prayer, and voila, they're saved. We see, now they might pray as a response to repentance and belief. They might pray as an expression of that. But we don't see this formula of, okay, say these magic words, and you're in, you're saved. Because so many people throughout history have put their faith and hope in some prayer they prayed as a kid when that's not even really biblical. In the Bible, we see, more, we see something like this posture of repentance and belief that someone has throughout their life. And that is what I would say indicates that someone is truly a believer. And so the question is, what is true belief? I want to look at Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 this morning. So go ahead and turn there. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And this is the verse, the passage that my youth pastor showed me that changed my life and finally gave me the confidence knowing that, that I did believe, I do believe, I do believe what this verse says. And so in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And so just look at this verse for a moment. What does it, the question is, what does it mean to believe? Is it the same kind of belief that, yes, I believe that 9-11 happened? Or I believe that um, World War II happened? I believe that Asia was rocked with a tsunami several years ago. I believe it happened. So the question is, what does it mean to believe? Because many people believe that Jesus is God. They'll say, yeah, yeah, I believe he's God. They'll even say, yes, I even believe that he died on the cross for our sins. They'll say they believe that it happened in history. Some will say, I believe that the resurrection happened. They'll say they believe these things like a set of intellectual statements. The only problem is, if you go to James, James says what? He says, even the demons believe and they shudder. Even the demons have intellectual belief. But the demons aren't getting saved. The key statement in this verse, look at, look, at it, look at it again. Believe in your heart. This is a trust. This is more than just intellectual adherence to the facts. This is a belief and a trust. Like I am placing my life in the hands of Jesus. I believe this so deeply that it's going to change the way that I live. It's going to change what comes out of my mouth. It's going to change how I treat people. It's going to change everything about me. And my youth pastor, when I came to him with doubts as a junior in high school, and I said, man, I know God is real, but I don't know my faith is real. I don't know. And he said, he flipped to this pastor. He said, look, I want you to read this. He says, what does it say? And he said, you know how you know if you believe in your heart? Has it affected the way that you live? And I said, well, has it? I don't know. (laughs) 
Is it just that I think that it has and I'm, I'm being tricked here? And he said, he said, Dave, I have seen the fruit in your life, and I can say with confidence that I think that this verse should give you confidence knowing that you truly believe this in your heart. You believe it deep down. You believe it where it changes the way that you live. In fact, I would say it this way. If you're someone, listen, look at me. If you're someone who's wrestling and you're saying things like, I don't know if I'm saved. I want, I want to know. I have a desire to know. I want to be saved. I, then I would say I'm not as worried about you. Because you're showing by your desire that you have the Holy Spirit's at work. You've got a desire to be a believer. I think God answers that desire. God has placed that within you even. And the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. But the person I worry about is the one who says, yeah, I prayed a prayer when I was six. I'm good. Now I can live how I want. That's the person that scares me. And that's the person that I would say, I don't think you're saved. I don't think you're saved. So, so the question is, what kind of belief is, is he talking about here? Um, and, and what does someone have to believe from this verse to be a Christian? Here's, I want to give you three things from this verse that you have to believe to be a Christian. The first one is in the verse, and it says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So you've got to believe that Jesus is Lord. You've got to believe that he's God, that he is the Messiah. The second thing is, You've got to believe that Jesus was killed for our sin, that he was killed on our behalf, on your behalf, that you deserved the death that he died. You deserved his death. And I know that, that the death of Christ is not listed in this passage, but the resurrection is listed in the passage, and it's kind of hard to have a resurrection with no death, right? So it's implied that you must believe that Jesus Christ was killed on our behalf for your sin. The third thing you have to believe in this passage is that Jesus was resurrected for our justification. You cannot be one of those people that says, yeah, I believe that the resurrection um, story is kind of like a, a metaphor. Or Jesus was resurrected in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our faith is, is hopeless and worthless without the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus. You've got to have that. And if you don't believe that, then I would say you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian and say Jesus was not resurrected literally and physically. And so the question then becomes, okay, if we know what belief is, then what is true repentance? Our next question. The word repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means new mind. And I would say we've said before that it means a change of mind, which is helpful, but I think I like the word the words new mind better because it shows there's been a transformation. It's not just that you decide, flip a switch, I'm going to change my mind, flip a switch, now I want to follow Christ. But it's an issue of a new mind implies that you see things differently, that, that you see things, you see the truth now because the Holy Spirit has removed the scales from your eyes and you, you're no longer blind, you can see the truth. And so, yes, your mind has changed because you have a new mind placed within you by the Holy Spirit. It's a new mind. And so you, th you see things completely differently, and that also involves that you're going to have new actions as well. And so I would say that repentance is belief in action. Repentance is not just a mind change. It's, it's, a, change, it's a new mind that leads to a change of action. Let me ask you this question, and I'll show this to you biblically. Think of Abraham being asked by God, 
to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. Remember that story in Genesis? So would we say that Abraham truly believed if he said, if God gives him this command, then God says, okay, go do that. Abraham says, okay. And then Abraham just sits there and doesn't do anything. If he never scales the mountain and picks up the stone to kill his son in faith, then did he really have faith? Faith has to imply action. This past week, I got a text message from a friend who said, hey, I need you to pray because my, my dad is serving my mom with divorce papers today, and she has no idea. Can you pray? And so I just sat there and prayed for repentance for this girl's father. What am I praying for? Am I praying that he'll have just a change of mind but still do the exact same thing? I'm praying we'll have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Repentance always implies action. This is real repentance. And so I want to show you what repentance is not. Repentance is not simply praying a sinner's prayer. Repentance is not simply just uttering the words um, that we say, uh, even at impact sometimes, just praying a prayer from rote memory and, and making that your salvation. That's not true repentance. You guys can go to my next slide at some point back there. That'd be good. Secondly, it's not feelings just sorry about our sin. It's not just saying, yeah, I'm sorry that I did that. I feel bad about that. There's a certain kind of sorrow that is worldly sorrow. There's a certain kind that leads to true salvation, true repentance. I'm talking about the kind that leads to true salvation and true repentance, not the kind that just says, yeah, I feel embarrassed about my sin. I feel ashamed of my sin. So feeling sorry is not just the same thing as repentance. The third thing, it's not just confession of sin. Repentance is not just simple admitting that you're wrong and just simply confessing the sin. Now, it might be the first step, but it's not the complete picture of repentance. The fourth thing, repentance is not just getting religious. It's not just to say, I see this quite a bit, I think, especially among youth and also especially in the Bible Belt, where people say things like, yeah, I've been kind of living wrong. I need to get back in church. Like, I need to get my life back together. I need to get the positivity, the positive vibes from church services that I used to get. I need to get back into that. And so that's not repentance. That's getting religious. That's saying, if I do these good things then my life will start to work out a bit better than before. That's religion, not the gospel. And this last one I described to you is the one that I'm, I think, probably most concerned for, for us. Because I hear this quite a bit. You know, I need to get my life back the way it was. And I'm just going to rejoin, become part of the church again. Well, yeah, that's a good step. But do you fall on your face before God and say, I want to turn my life over to you? I want to truly repent. And then, um, so the last question I want to look at brings us back to ground zero again is how do you know, how do you really know you're saved? And we see in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and it says this. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Listen, by this we, have, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
Now, I know when I say that, you're like, that's a scary verse too because I'm looking at that going, yeah, I try, but I don't always get it right. I mess up. So when you read John, because John's not the most comforting author to read because he talks in these, like, extremes sometimes, and you're going, that sounds like I'm not saved. But when he's, what he's getting at is, yes, do you obey his commandments? I'll say this to you if you're having doubts about that now. Listen, do you even obey him when you sin by confessing it to him and turning from your sin? Because here's the deal, guys. Listen, listen to me. The big deal isn't always that you sinned, but the big deal is how you respond to your sin. And so do you obey him in your response to sin? Do you obey him in your response to sin? Because everyone's going to sin. But do you obey him in your response to sin? That's a part of obedience as well. And there's one last quote I want you to see before we go to breakouts here. And it's uh, this. J.D. Greer says, Often the strongest evidence of my growth in grace is my growth in the knowledge of my need for grace. And so it's not like you just sit there and go, Okay, I'm being sanctified, I'm growing spiritually, I'm climbing this ladder of sanctification. But sanctification means you're becoming more and more aware of your sin as you grow in your walk with Christ, and you become more and more aware of your need for grace as you confront that sin in your life. And so with that, I want you guys to go to breakouts. So we're going to do this. Um, we've got to move quickly. I've got the discussion seats over here at the uh, ping pong table, and so we'll do uh, freshman girls, you guys go ahead and head out, and all the rooms are labeled down the hallway. You guys have Kim this morning because the other leaders are out of town for freshman girls. Freshman girls head out. Freshman guys head out. Move quickly, move quickly.